Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate centers on age discrimination, which is rampant in some companies. There is a concerted effort to decrease the number of older workers in the workforce. And you really don't know until something drastic happens. How to identify age bias and what you can do to protect your rights. Then he's on the board of a nonprofit that's facing backlash. People say, well, you're breaking the law. Sure I am. What former Governor Ed Rendell says he's willing to do to save lives. All of this and more. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is ageism. According to a 2018 survey by AARP, nearly two out of three workers over the age of 45 have seen or experienced age discrimination on the job. It hits both men and women over age 64 and between age 45 and 60, women are hit the hardest. Now, in some industries like tech, age bias runs rampant. So how do you identify ageism and what can you do to ensure you are not a victim. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Peggy Truitt. She is Director of Career Strategies, a program of Jeff's Human Services. We also have Gloria Moss. She's in a program specifically for individuals over age 55. And finally, we have Laura Carlin Mariachi. She's a partner and member of Consul Mariachi Law, LLC. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. I first would like to um, go to you, Laura. Could you just give an overarching definition of what ageism is? Ageism is a bias against people that are older. The federal law is the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, ADEA. That protects people that are age 40 and older. People in Pennsylvania also have protections under state law, under the Pennsylvania Human Relations Act. Similarly, protects people age 40 and older. And in Philadelphia, people that work in Philadelphia are protected under the Philadelphia Fair Practices Ordinance. So those are the laws that protect people against being treated differently in the workplace, whether it's in termination or demotion or having a hostile work environment or failure to promote or failure to hire based upon their age. Peggy, you work with individuals in careers. Tell me some reason why Jeff specifically created a program to deal with this issue. Well, there's definitely a need. 50% of people of this age leave the workforce not because they're ready to leave the workforce. Either they're forced out or they're laid off for um, different reasons. At Career Strategies, the majority of people that we see are between 40 and 65 years old. And most of them are coming because they've been laid off. Some of them were laid off during the recession and haven't been able to recoup. And some have been laid off, you know, more recently. And Gloria, you're over age 55. Tell me some of your experience. It's very vast. Mm -hmm. And when you go into an interview, you can almost tell right away that you are not what they're looking for. The fact that I have gray hair, that's usually a dead giveaway that my age is over 40. And instead of conversating with you to find out your skills and things like that, it's like they talk at you to get it done and go on to the next. What is your profession? I am an administrative assistant. Laura, you worked on a big case specifically related to ageism. Tell me some of the facts of this case and how you dealt with it. At our firm, we handle lots of different age discrimination cases. It's probably the most 
prominent form of discrimination that we see. We have uh, we just represent employees in workplace situations, and primarily sex, race, religion, national origin, color, disability, and age discrimination. But age discrimination is, I would say, most of what we do because it's so prevalent. Mm. Just in the last year, have had several trials. Very recently, a, a large case against Teva for six and a half million dollars. The jury came back and awarded. The facts are very similar. It's a person, um, oftentimes a long service employee who's been in the workplace, sometimes 25, 30 years, has done a really good job. And then the company decides they're going to do a reduction in force, which they call a RIF. And that means that they're going to downsize in some way. When they downsize, oftentimes it's the older people that lose their jobs, even though they have been there and they have the skills and experience to do so. We see that over and over again. And I think one of the things that people are not aware of when these rifts occur, the, the people that are affected by the RIF, they're given what's called a severance package. It might be a certain amount of money. And in exchange for that amount of money, they have to sign a release agreement. And the release agreement says the employee cannot sue the company for anything, including age discrimination. The law says, the federal law says, if the company is going to lay somebody off and it's going to be more than one person at a time, they must, under the Older Workers Benefit Protection Act, provide that employee with a list of the employees that were being kept and the employees that were being laid off. Not by name, but by position. And also has to list their ages. And the reason for that is so that the affected employee can look at that list and say, hmm, why is it that all the 50 and 60-year-olds are losing their jobs, mm. but the 20 and 30s aren't? Maybe I don't want to sign this document and give up my right. Laura just laid out, this happens a lot. There are a number of reasons that people give for hiring younger workers. First of all, younger workers are less expensive to your payroll budget. Also, employers tend to think that younger people are more adaptable to the workforce. They may come with increased skills, particularly in technology. They also probably more up on things in the workforce in general and be a little more open to learning new things. Um, so there's really a lot a lot of different reasons. Sometimes the, the payroll part is a big part of it, though. Are there employers that so, sort of are open to hiring older workers and are very happy to have? The standard was always Walmart with the greeters at the front door, but I'm not even sure that they do that anymore. But there are some employers that are open to that. For instance, if you go to the AARP website, there's yeah. a, a lot of information there in terms of employers that are open. Yeah. Um, but also, um, you know, working with the CareerLink, which is um, the Pennsylvania CareerLink, they work with a lot of employers who are looking to hire people. And some of those tend to be open to, um, you know, hiring veterans and yeah. mature workers. When did you feel the shift, Gloria? Age-wise, I was about 45. You weren't that new kid on the block anymore. You had the salt and pepper starting to happen and seasoning of knowing your job. And it's when you as a person feel comfortable in the position that you are, then all of a sudden things change on the outside, the higher-ups. They look at you different. They speak to you differently. You're not the go-to person anymore. It's that younger person that just came in. And it's gradual, and you really don't know it until after a conversation happens or, or a meeting happens, and you're like, hmm, well, they didn't ask my opinion. Mm -hmm. And you sit back in and you start thinking, hmm, okay, something has changed. And you really don't know until something drastic happens. And then you sit back and think, I should have done something. Should have done something earlier. When you look at the law, they're looking at ages of starting at age 40. 40. 
That's Which, when you just start getting good. I'm like, <laughs> exactly. You just start it's also good. when you're, you know, starting to earn more money too. Yeah. So you know, there's just a lot of things involved. And when you hear Gloria talk about this shift, and, and you, uh, Laura, try to take this to court, how do you sort of articulate and sort of identify when it's not the things that Peggy said, and it is what Gloria is talking about? Well, interestingly, under the U.S. Supreme Court precedent, if the company were to say the reason this person was let go was had nothing to do with age, it was just they were highest paid or in the higher paid bracket and we, we needed to cut costs, they'd get out of liability. They, they would be able to get out of the case. But the companies are not saying that. And the reason is because they're not offering the older person the less pay if that, in fact, is the re- real reason. So if they say, well, this person was making $70,000, that's older, and that position now we are only willing to pay $60,000 for, and that's why we let the person go, well, then offer the older person the 60000 and keep their job. They don't do that. If, if you say to an older person, you have to take a $10,000 pay cut to keep your job, or you're out on the street, they're going to take the pay cut. But the companies don't do that because they don't even offer it. They just eliminate the older person. And now they do, under the law, have to come up with a reason. They have to come up with a reason for why they they terminate that person. And they'll come up with um, uh, a skill set analysis and this person wasn't as good as that other person. But what we find in litigation is, in fact, that older, more mature, seasoned person who has uh, a lifetime of experience behind them has more qualifications and is is better at that job than the 25-year-old or 30-year-old that they put in the position. And that's why we win the cases at trial. And we see in big companies especially that there is a concerted effort to decrease the number of older workers in the workforce. They want younger workers. They want to get rid of the older workers. And they're, they're taking steps to do so. Go ahead, Gloria. Yeah. The sad part about that is as a worker, you really don't know what your rights are. You don't know that there are people out there who will fight for you when you find yourself in this type of situation. People tend to say, well, okay, yeah, I've been here 20, 30 years. I guess it's time for me to go. They really don't know what the law says and how it pertains to them and what they should be doing to facilitate, if litigation comes, what paperwork they should have, what conversations they should have. Yeah. Peggy, how do you train people? What do you, what do you guys do at Jeff's to sort of prepare people to deal with this issue? You don't really know what your your rights are when you're, you know, maybe being um, discriminated against or targeted when you're working there. But a lot of people don't even know what is available to them to help them look for employment. Um, Gloria was fortunate enough to somehow come connected to CareerLink and the 55 plus program and some other resources. So that's the one thing that I would say is many times people find themselves to be unemployed, um, particularly if they've been in a situation or an employment situation for 10 or 20 or 30 years. And, you know, you identify so much your being with your work that it's very devastating. What we find is a lot of people just sort of dwell on that for a while and then try and find employment on their own. But there really are a lot of resources. Career Strategies is one of those resources. Um, We work with clients more on an individual basis to help with um, things like resume writing, interviewing skills, job search skills, um, technology. We do some free computer training a few times a year for our clients. So you can knock that excuse out the the park. Yeah. Well, we think you can. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it's a hard sell. Um, Sometimes people say, well, I didn't need that in my last job. Why do I have to learn it now? And the answer is because... 
all the employers that you're going to be talking to going forward want you to have that. We also help um, help them understand the value of social media, of having a LinkedIn account, um, how to look for employment um, on a LinkedIn account. There's also the PA Career Link, which is free of charge to everybody and provides job search services. They are looking to hire people. They also do a lot of training. They also have some resume and interviewing workshops that they provide. And then our Career Solutions uh, for 55 Plus program, which is funded by the PCA, is free to Philadelphia residents who are yeah. 55 and older. Job applicants, according to the Seventh Circuit case, that just came out, are not protected under all these federal laws. While companies can't discriminate against their current employees. And, and Laura, am I wrong about this? I mean, it's, it says that it seems like there's no lawsuit for them discriminating against applicants. Luckily, we're not in the Seventh Circuit. <laughs> we're in the Third Circuit. We're not in that circuit. We're in the Third Circuit. I think the circuit decision is wrong. It's something that probably the Supreme Court will, will take on to look at. But I don't think it's it's correct. The Age Discrimination and Employment Act was passed in 1967. This is what Congress said in the preamble to that statute. The incidence of unemployment, especially long-term unemployment, with resultant deterioration of skill, morale, and employer acceptability is, relative to the younger ages, higher among older workers. Their numbers are great and growing, and their employment problems grave. It is therefore the purpose of this chapter to promote employment of older persons based on their ability rather than age to prohibit arbitrary age discrimination in employment, and to help employers and workers find ways of meeting problems arising from the impact of age on employment. That's what Congress thought in 1967. The same problems exist today, and I think they're getting worse. To go to Gloria's point of people not understanding their rights, it's difficult. It's not something that you think about unless you're in that position. And in Pennsylvania, if, you, if you're a Pennsylvania worker and you believe you've been discriminated against based upon age, you have to first file a charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, and you have to do so within 180 days of the termination of the last discriminatory act uh, for your state law claims, and you have to do so within 300 days of your federal law claims. New Jersey workers have a little longer time. They have two years. But that's a quick amount of time to be able to, to, to file that claim. It's a, it's a whammy for you. You're just trying to figure out how you're going to pay your mortgage, how to get another job, yes. and you're not thinking about this. And the other thing I just want to make sure people should be aware is that list that I was talking yeah. about. What we're finding is that companies are giving a fraudulent list to the employees, and they're padding the list with ages and positions and ages of younger workers that are supposedly being let go as part of the layoff. So an older worker is looking at the list and going, well, looks like they have a bunch of 20 and 30-year-olds being let go too. I guess it's not age discrimination. I'll sign away my rights and have my severance. Turns out oftentimes the company will say in there, the severance doesn't kick in for 60 days, so you have 60 days to look for another job. Unbeknownst to the older worker within those 60 days, younger people get jobs. The older people don't find out. They don't get a new list after 60 days to say who actually was impacted by this. And it turns out none of the older workers are getting a job, but the younger workers are. What the law says, though, and, and people should be aware, is if you are given a fraudulent list and you want to pursue your claim under age discrimination, you can keep your severance money and still pursue the claim. But again, it's, it's difficult for people yeah, to, to have know. that knowledge. So tell me a little bit about your story, Gloria. i Retired from the state of Arizona. Mm -hmm. My sister passed away, which brought me here to Philadelphia. I'm staying with relatives right now, and I want to live on my own. The only way that I can do that is if I become employed. Just by chance, found out about CareerLink, and it's been a wonderful tool 
to, number one, know what's out there, to judge your skills. I found out what I needed to upskill and what the changes that I need to make to be employable for someone to look at and say, okay, yeah, your skill set is good. I would like you on my team. I did become employed with Sprouts Supermarket as type of a career change. It, that just wasn't for me. So this is my second go around with CareerLink, and I'm looking for an office position. Yeah. I am trying to build, expand my knowledge. One thing, people in my age group, they're kind of resistant to technology, and I'm here to tell you, do whatever you can yeah. to get to that point because any place that you go, they're going to yeah. want you to have those skills. It's People buy into stereotypes when it comes to older workers. You got to tackle those stereotypes, Peggy. So can you do that for me? You can't really even apply for a job mm. unless you have some technology. You have to go online to apply for positions. No one's really sending in their resume anymore. Um, when you're on those websites, you have to know how to upload your uh, resume. Um, so those are some of the things that we work with our clients on, uh, as does CareerLink. Um, so the technology part is really important. There are stereotypes. The technology part is one. In the work that we do, um, we've seen people who are, you know, 40 and 50 years old who may have been in the IT field but didn't continue learning. They have a harder time finding employment. We also have a client who was in his 70s who did continue learning and became employed in his field at a wonderful salary um, at a local hospital. Continuing you know, the the education, no matter what your field is, is really important. And I think what the law speaks to, it's not that just because you're older, you get to keep your job. Yeah. you. It's the law is about looking at people as individual humans, putting stereotype aside and making the employer look at that particular person's merit and qualifications. And so it's not it, it doesn't give an excuse away to somebody who didn't keep up the technology. Well, that person's just not going to be employed. And that's a legitimate reason not to if that particular job mandates that you need to have certain skills. But the law is supposed to be in the brain of the employer to say to them, I have an applicant in front of me or I have a promotional candidate in front of me. I'm going to look at that individual person and I'm going to put stereotypes aside. And that's what you're protected from as an employee is having stereotypes infect the minds of the decision makers. What do people have a right to do and what should they do as we as we close out this discussion if they think that things have shifted and that their age was a factor? They should not be signing any documentation without consulting a lawyer first. So if there's a group layoff or even an individual layoff and they feel that age may have played a role or they're just the determination doesn't make sense. You have a right to go and find out your legal rights. So you should take the time to go and talk to a lawyer. Um, most don't charge anything to, to have those that initial consultation. We don't know all of the information at in the initial meeting, but we may be able to have to understand that person's background, qualifications, who were they replaced by, are they being replaced by a, a much younger person as less qualifications, and the reason given is not justified, then they may have a, a claim for age discrimination. But they have to do so quickly. You know, like I said, the statute of limitations, yeah. which is the deadline to be able to file it if you don't do so. And also internally, it's really important that if you're currently employed and believe that you're being discriminated against, to complain internally that they believe that there is discrimination occurring. It's really hard because people fear retaliation for very justified reasons. Um, but 
uh, and again, you can have the assistance of counsel to do that. But that is something that, that should be done as well. Yeah. Your advice to other workers over 55 like yourself. Don't stop. Learn as much as you can. Seek your resources. Utilize those resources and keep that daily journal because it aids in litigation because you have a date, time and place and what was said. And so a final word to you, Peggy, give the resources that people who are over 55, if they looking for employment. Jeb's Career Strategies, um, the PA Career Link is certainly a great resource. Everything's provided there free of charge. And then also the Career Solutions for 55 Plus program, which is based out of the Career Link, is there. And the other thing that I I just want to say is all of these programs, certainly what we do is we provide the nuts and bolts of the, the resume writing, the interviewing skills, all of that kind of stuff. But I always say the other 50% of what we do at Career Strategies is to provide the emotional support, to cheer you on, to help you understand, you know, where some of your weaknesses might be, and just to, you know, rebuild your confidence. And that's really what we all try and do. And give the Jeb's website. It's um, jebshumanservices.org. Thank you so much to Peggy Truitt. Thank you to Gloria Moss. And thank you to Laura Carlin Mariachi for coming into Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, he's on the board of a nonprofit that's facing backlash. Argument to the U.S. attorney is there's many things that are illegal that you don't prosecute. What former Governor Ed Rendell says he's willing to do to save lives. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that has been burning up the headlines this week is the impending reality that the nation's first safe injection site could be coming to Philadelphia really soon. And this week, the debate got heated at neighborhood meetings. Safe House, a privately funded nonprofit whose mission is to reduce self-harm, has been looking at properties specifically in Kensington. Now, former Governor Ed Rendell is on the group's board, and we are in his Broad Street office. Governor, welcome to Flashpoint. You're on the board of Safe House. Could you explain how safe injection sites work? In 2017, 2,417 people died of drug overdoses from opioids, from heroin, from fentanyl. They died because they injected themselves. They went into overdose shock. It's a drug mm-hmm. that can reverse the effects of an overdose. It, it's called Narcan or Naloxone. And there was nobody there to administer the drug to them. So what safe houses are, and they're in 35 countries throughout the world, mm-hmm. what safe houses are are places where people can come and inject themselves in front of trained medical personnel who will observe them to see if they go into, they're having an overdose. If they are in fact having an overdose, these trained medical personnel immediately administer Narcan to them, reverse the effects of the overdose. Now, before they even inject themselves, we talk to them about treatment opportunities. Mm. It's very important because they are required to talk to us about treatment opportunities. Our belief is that a significant number will agree to go into treatment. The safe house will have showers, Mm -hmm. 
so they can come off the street and, and clean up. Bathrooms where they can go to the bathroom in, in private. It'll have rooms where they can chill out either before or after the procedure. It'll have a cafeteria where we'll be able to give them some healthy food. Uh, and then there'll be social workers who will talk to them about treatment op- opportunities. The benefit of this is, number one, no one dies of an overdose. Mm-hmm. If they have an overdose, we save their lives. And the estimates from the safe houses we've studied all over the world, particularly in Canada, is we'll save 50 to 75 lives a year. Number two, we believe we'll get a lot of these addicts to go into treatment. And number three, we believe we'll get them off the street. The neighbors are understandably against having a safe house yes, in their they neighborhood. Are. Mm-hmm. That's in part because they're reacting viscerally. They're reacting emotionally. What we have said to the neighbors, and maybe not enough, you have open and notorious drug injections in the streets of Kensington. On corners, yeah. On corners. In front of houses, The yeah. people who do this inject themselves in front of your kids, and your kids say what they're – it's sort of an open window to the kids to drug use. They defecate and urinate on the streets. Mm-hmm. They leave trash on the streets. It's a very difficult situation. If the safe house opens, mm-hmm. this will all go inside. And addicts are like the rest of us. They'll be able to take a shower. They'll be able to get some healthy food. And then when it's time to inject themselves, they'll be able to inject themselves away from the view of neighbors or neighbors' children. Is the only type of drugs that people can use here, Are there, is it only injectable drugs? Well, the injectable drugs are the ones that have the danger of mm-hmm. overdose. One thing I want to stress, though, we do not deal in drugs. We do not. So no drug sales. No drug sales, no drug giveaways. You have to, if you want to use Safe House to inject yourself, you have to bring your drugs with you. Mm-hmm. We will give you a clean needle. Do the professionals help them inject correctly? Tell them or how something. to do it, but they won't actually do it for them. Mm-hmm. People say, some people say, well, this is illegal because you're providing them with drugs. There's a statute that says you can't do that. There's mm-hmm. a crack house statute. We don't provide them with drugs. They have to bring their own drugs in. Mm-hmm. What we provide them with mm-hmm. is a chance to survive if they have an overdose. Uh, the average age of people who die of overdose is very, very young. Mm-hmm. If we can stop 50, 75 people from dying, is that worth it? Why do you think people have such a visceral negative reaction because a lot of people do. I mean, it's because they don't listen. I read in the paper that someone from the Kensington neighborhood said, well, Ed Rendell wouldn't want this in East Falls. If I had open and notorious drug use in my neighborhood in East Falls, if I had people going to the bathroom in the streets, if I had people trashing the streets with all sorts of trash, and the alternative was to build a safe house to have the people go inside, I would let it happen in my neighborhood because Mm -hmm. it would be an improvement. There is a lawsuit currently pending against Safe House bought by the U.S. attorney in this district. Seeking a declaratory judgment. Yeah, to stop it. What's your response to that lawsuit? They say that, you know, this is illegal. My response is it isn't illegal. Supplying people with safe needles is legal. Actually, that happened because 25 years ago Mm -hmm. as mayor... I authorized the clean needle exchange. And that was controversial at the time. The neighbors hated it. Yeah. Turns out it's been a great thing. Cities all over America copied it. And the Congress actually made it legal. We talked to them about treatment, going into treatment. That's obviously a legal act. And we administer Narcan to them if they have an overdose. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. Those are all legal acts. So where is the illegality? And they're saying, well, the statute says crack house, the wording of the statute says if you provide them 
with the opportunity to use drugs, and that's what you're doing. The men and women who voted this in the Senate and the House of Representatives 30 years ago, do you think that they intended to make this type of thing illegal? Mm -hmm. Do you think that they wanted nurses and doctors to go to jail for watching people administer drugs to themselves and then saving their lives? Of course not. So that's number one. We think it's legal. But number two, even if the court were to find it was illegal, our argument to the U.S. attorney is there's many things that are illegal that you don't prosecute. Yeah, yeah. It is against the federal crime laws to possess marijuana in any amount. When is the last time the U.S. attorney prosecuted someone for possessing a small So you're saying they should just look the other way? Not look the other way. Use prosecutorial discretion. So what we're saying is use your head. This is a good thing. We're saving yeah. lives. Yeah. 35 countries have it. We visited t- Toronto. We took some of the neighbors with us to Toronto. Vancouver, where there are safe houses mm-hmm. in, in Canada. People are used to it in Canada and countries all over the world, in Western Europe, or whatever. And we think this will save lives. In fact, we feel yeah. so strongly about it that even if the court rules against us, it is my mindset and most of the people on the safe house board to go forward. No matter what the court says, this is going to happen. Right. And people say, well, you're breaking the law. Sure I am. But so did Rosa Parks when she wouldn't get up when she was sitting in the whites-only part of the bus. Thurgood Marshall has said, you know, you do what you think is right and let the law catch up. Absolutely. That's and been his statement. some judge wants you know. to sentence me to jail for 30 days, it's not even the state prisons. It's the federal prison. Maybe I'll go to one of those places where you can play tennis. So, so Governor, you're willing to go to jail for this. That's how strong Absolutely. you feel. But I don't want doctors and nurses who are volunteering their time to go to jail. Now, law enforcement isn't really on board with this, although Commissioner Ross has said he's more open-minded. What is your word to a law enforcement who says this, is, this isn't good? Well, remember, the U.S. Attorney's law enforcement. Too, too. yeah, but police the who mayor, are on the ground. The yeah. mayor is taking an appropriate position. He's not endorsing it, but he's saying that the police aren't going to make arrests. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Attorney General says it's illegal. He hasn't decided whether the state is going to make arrests. Mm-hmm. In my first year as mayor in 1992, Prevention Point was against the law. We yeah. were giving out drug paraphernalia. Later, the law was changed to make that legal, but it was against the law, against the federal law and against the state law. I got a call from the health commissioner in the Governor Ridge's administration, and he said, look, mayor, this is against the law, and we're going to arrest people who do this. I said, look, secretary, don't arrest the workers that are doing this. I authorized it. My office number is 212 City Hall. Come down and arrest me. And you know what happened? What? They never arrested me. And the illegal activity went on for a decade. And district attorneys, attorney generals, governors, U.S. attorneys, nobody arrested us. And Prevention Point became a lifesaver. And so why are you so, I mean, you were ahead of the curve, obviously, in 1992. And now you're trying to be ahead of the curve Because when the safe house people came to me, there were two things that had happened. One, I didn't know anything about Safe House. They explained it to me. But I was driven by two things. One, my experience with Prevention Point. Yeah. Because this is Prevention Point deja yeah. vu. Mm-hmm. And two, one of my closest friends, a man I have known and his wife I've known since college, the Deckers. Their son, John Decker, I knew since he was five years old. Cornell went on to be a star lacrosse player. Badly injured his leg playing lacrosse. Took painkillers. Took too many painkillers. 
got addicted to opioids. And the story is a familiar one. The Deckers were away on vacation. John Decker died from an overdose in their bed. They came home from vacation to find him dead in their bed. Had he gone to a clean injection site, he would be alive today. This brilliant 29-year-old young man who had everything to live for, who had the opportunity to do extraordinary things to help other people, was taken from them because there was no one to turn to. And when you have an overdose, it's almost immediate. You can't inject yourself with Narcan. So because I knew John Decker... The opioid crisis had become something I just didn't read about in the newspaper or listen to on radio or TV. It became personal. Yeah. Opioid overdose is something that hits at every ethnic background in the city, Mm -hmm. every economic strata in the city, every geographic area in the Mm -hmm. city. The only reason we picked Kensington to, to operate the first safe house is because that's where the most open drug injections are going on in the city. It could have the the greatest impact. It would have its greatest impact. We intend to use the site that everyone's talking about. We intend to use that for only a couple of years. And then we intend to move into a site that's more acceptable to the neighbors unless they finally say to us, well, the Hilton Street site isn't bad. Mm -hmm. We like what's going on. If they still oppose it, we intend to move at the end of two years. How much is this going to cost? Is this a, is this going to cost? I know you guys are privately funded. Yeah, it's not going to cost the cost taxpayers a dime. Mm-hmm. We're going to raise money from this. And we think the first two years of operation, we originally budgeted that as $1.8 million. But that price tag included buying a building. We now don't have to buy the building. And the owner of the building... He had a son who also died of opioid overdose. So he's giving us the building the first year for a dollar a year. Wow. So it'll cost a lot less than 1.8, probably about 1.2 million. There are foundations that are waiting to see what's happening who have indicated they have an interest in, fi- in funding us. There are individuals mm-hmm. who say that they have an interest in funding us. And so people are ready to donate. For this. Yeah, no question. Mm-hmm. We, our website has a donate peg on it, and it's not a great website. And $5, $10, $25 gifts are pouring in. Mm-hmm. What would make this a success in your mind? If we save 10 people a year, and we're going to save more than that, we're going to save 50, 75, and get three or 400 to go, seek tre- to go into treatment programs. That's a huge success. And what's the cost? The cost to the public is nothing. What's the danger? Someone has to explain to me what the danger is. There has been pushback from communities of color because of the fact that, you know, when the crack epidemic and all this was going on, there wasn't this type of more of a kind approach. What do you say to those folks who are just upset about this because of that? If we say 50 young people, 10, 15 of them may be black, maybe African-American, they want them to die. The Kensington neighborhood is an integrated neighborhood. It's Mm -hmm. white, Hispanic, and African-American. So we're not just putting this in a black neighborhood. And by the way, when this becomes successful, as I believe it will be, and accepted as I believe it will be, we'll look for other sites in addition to one in Kensington, other sites in areas where there's the same type of open, notorious Mm -hmm. drug usage on the street. Our goal is to save as many lives as possible, to get as many people into treatment as possible. What's wrong with that? Last question to you, those folks who are on the fence, your last word to those folks to get them over the line. Talk to people that live in the neighborhood near Prevention Point. The same fears were expressed when Prevention Point started. None of those fears have been realized. Prevention Point has been a big success. And remember, 
for those people to say, Governor, you're advocating breaking the law. When Rosa Parks wouldn't get up on that bus and move to the whites, move out of the whites only section, she was breaking a law on the books of that city. Mm-hmm. If she didn't do it, who knows where we'd be today. All right. Well, thank you so much, Governor Ed Rendell, talking about Safe House, city's first safe injection site. Thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Next up, it's a drive for formal wear. Her father's suit fits this kid to a T. The clothing exchange program helping high schoolers for their big night. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the podcast on the Radio.com app or on all podcast platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community, and prom season is upon us. And one local nonprofit is doing some outreach and will soon host a fun event to help prom goers get everything that they need for free. Here to tell us more about the Prom Gear Exchange is Ginger Smith. Ginger, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. So you are affiliated with an organization. Yes. So the Prom Gear Exchange is a community-based event, and the idea is to support our youth in the community. It's also about helping to eliminate or lessen the financial burden or hardships that a lot of families have around prom season. It gets very costly. And so we're very excited to bring this event to the community for the third year. This year, our host is the Calvary Christian Church, which is on the the Roosevelt Boulevard. We're actively collecting prom gear or formal wear for both young ladies and young men now through the end of April. And then we will make all those items available to the youth for free. Wonderful. And so you work with Catholic Community Services. What do you do for them? I'm the community liaison, so I'm always out in the community trying to forge partnerships with different entities, and that's a really big aspect of this event because it's a collaborative effort. We have the church that's playing the host. In years past, we've had Zips uh, dry cleaning to dry clean all of the items that were collected. It's a partnership with just community members donating the items itself. So you all saw a problem because, I mean, a lot of times you buy this prom stuff, you wear it like one night. (laughs) And we get a really lot of nice things. And it's even though it's an event that's based in the Northeast, we have folks that donate from all over the city. Yeah. And I also want to mention that even though it is in the Northeast, it's just not exclusive to youth from the Northeast. Any youth within the community is free to come and participate. And so you are collecting that right now. Absolutely. We're collecting gowns, suits, tucks, um, as well as accessories, shoes, purses, jewelry, uh, cufflinks, anything, you know, that's prom, formal wear appropriate. Yeah. And then in April, you guys have a big day for folks to go shopping. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we set up everything. Um, and what I really enjoy and, and pride ourselves on with this event is that um, each young person that comes through the door is paired up with a volunteer or staff person, and they kind of act as their personal shopper. So they're, they're with them throughout the whole process and identifying something. And like on the program TLC, 
when they find the dress, they said, you're saying yes to the dress. And we're saying, you're saying yes to the dress. Or you're saying yes to the suit. And then everybody just erupts in, you know, this great applause, you know, celebrating the young people. Yeah. And why is this so important and why do you feel passionate about it? I mean, this is the third year you're doing this. We want to help lessen that financial burden. We wouldn't want to have young people miss out on this exciting time of their lives. You know, sometimes people are critical saying, well, why are you spending so much money? But, you know, the the young people today are contending with a lot. And so to be able to celebrate this momentous time in their lives, we we think is really important. And, And thinking in years ahead, I would maybe like to expand it to maybe offer a couple of scholarships to young people that may be going on to higher education. I think that would be really cool. And so you work at ACOA. There's a lot of kids there, a lot of times who are separated from their parents, but have loving homes that they're in. And this alleviates burdens on the families. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a resource for all families, but especially uh, resource parents, you know, foster parents that have taken children in and they may have multiple children that are in school and, and attending prom. So it can really become costly. So part of our mission is strengthening families, uniting communities. And this event kind of encompasses all of that. What would make this a a super success for you guys? To have every young person that come through the door be successful in identifying something. I would like to add that we also, last year, we added a DJ just to make it really festive and a resource table. So we have youth mentors on our team now that are gathering resources to make available that day. And that could be driver's manuals. That could be information on scholarships, um, how to prepare for an interview, so, you know, we're, we're thinking long term and looking at the big picture and what we're able to offer the youth. And what does it make? How do you feel when you see that young person twirling around in their new dress or the young man with a big smile on his face because he found a suit for prom? It just makes my heart glad. The first year I had a really amazing story where I got so engulfed in the event that I forgot to pick up the pizza for staff and volunteers. And as I was leaving the building to go pick it up, I, I encountered two young people that just were walking through the parking lot. And so I said, hey, you know, you guys going to prom? Not really knowing their story. And they said, no. And I said, well, why not? And they said, we can't afford it. And I was like, this is your lucky day. You've got to come inside and check us out. So our team assisted them in identifying something. So when they came out, they both were in coordination. And it was so amazing. They looked so awesome. And um, I had had a Facebook friend whose father had passed of cancer, and he was a very um, tall man, maybe about 6'4". And this kid just happened to be that height and that size. And when I say that her father's suit that she donated fit this kid to a T, it was just, like, too good to be true. And they brought their parents back, and the mother just cried, and she was just so overwhelmed, you know, thinking that there was some catch to it. And we explained to her, no, this is who we are. This is what we do. Everything's free. And then we were able to throw in like a a voucher for Stein's Florist in Frankfurt. I want to give them a shout out because they've been donating gift certificates so the kids could get wristlets at a discounted rate. And you got a little teared up right there just thinking about it. (laughs) I really did. (laughs) That sounds so beautiful. Um, So where can people get in touch with you if they have some really awesome suits, dresses, whatever? So they can get in contact with myself, uh, Ginger Smith. My number is 215-221-2010. Or they can also email me at gismith at chs-adphila.org. Yeah, just give me a call, shoot me an email, and we can coordinate, you know, pickup of the items. And I just really thank everybody in advance for their, their support of this great event. Wonderful. So I want to say thank you so much to Ginger Smith. We'll also post this on our website with a link to your Facebook page and, and also include your phone number and everything so people can get in touch with you. 
Can I give one shout out? I just I didn't want to omit St. Hubert's for Girls. They have been doing a collection on our behalf to support this event for the last two weeks. I want to give a shout out to all those sweet young ladies over there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much to Ginger Smith. She is with the Catholic Community Services Community Liaison. Keep liaisoning, (laughs) bringing in those prom, that prom gear. And please mention when the big event is. Saturday, April the 27th from 11 to 2 at Calvary Christian Church, which is at 6000 Roosevelt Boulevard. Wonderful. Good luck on your prom gear exchange, Ginger Smith. Thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As the late great boxer and activist Muhammad Ali once said, ages mind over matter. As long as you don't mind, it don't matter. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.